Hello, and welcome to the 21st episode of the XXLA Architects Podcast. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today I'm speaking with Rachel Allen, the founding principal of the architectural firm Radar. Though I hadn't met Rachel before this interview, I found that in talking with her, I came to understand and admire a collaborative, pragmatic, intelligent, and unapologetically hardworking ethos that she brings to her practice. The payoff of her hard work is evident in their growing project list, such as their role as design architect on the competition-winning team for the Pershing Square Renew project. Additionally, Radar has been building up a multifamily housing portfolio, and in this interview, Rachel tells me more about how she went from working on a six-unit project to now working on a project with over 200 units. We talk about how it's possible for Rachel to be successful working on what she loves, which is also related to her parenting philosophy, having grown up in and established babysitting cooperatives. But first, I couldn't resist asking her to talk about her experience in the early 2000s as a Rome Prize recipient getting to live in my favorite city for a year. The Rome Prize I had in 2002 to 2003, I recommend it. My thing I say about it is really that everyone should get one. (laughs) There should just be more of these things so that more people get the experience when I was there Myself and Andy Zago were the architects. One of the things about the Academy is that it's a little bit like Noah's Ark. Like it's two by two in terms of um, the fields. So there are classicists and art historians and social historians, painters, graphic designers, and composers. The composers were my favorite. It was very, very interesting to get a front row seat on different kinds of creative practices And the composers, I'm always telling this story, um, but the composers are really like composers in cartoons. Like when they're working on a piece, they grow their beards out, or they were both men in this case. So they grew their beards out and stayed up all night. And one of them was doing all his transcriptions by hand for all the instruments. It was really valuable to witness that. What were you working on while you were there? So the um, project... I pitched was to revisit the sites of Piranesi's uh, Vedute di Roma and look again at not just the monuments in each of those images, but also the social scenes. Um, Some of them have like shepherds in them. I got really obsessed with the clouds. Still to this day, I can't really explain why. I shot a lot of footage of the skies above Rome. So that was my entrance project, but a year is a long time. And I actually completed that project and then started doing other projects. Um, While I was there, I did a series of drawings of the Tempietto. I did a study for an imaginary city for archaeologists to be installed above Pompeii. I still think that you could build scaffolding above the city, which would create shade for the archaeologists and tourists down below, and you could put program in it up above. I mean, I really ran out of things to do. It's a long time. (laughs) So at one point, I started um, designing a dream house for myself and my boyfriend at the time, and I just used an imaginary site and started doodling. Uh huh. And that ended up getting shown at Shoshana Wayne at Bergamot Station when I got back. I saw um, images of the model. Yeah. 
I built the model in the garden wood shop in Rome, and then I hadn't really thought it all the way through, but I had to ship it back. <laughs> I had to get a crate made and ship it back. Yeah, anyone who even thinks about applying for the Rome Prize should give it a shot. I still think that some people pre-fail themselves for these things, and it's but it's a good idea to just go for it. Hmm. I imagine it's pretty competitive, though. I'm, you have to really give it serious thought when you do apply. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> which is which everyone should do. That's what yeah. I mean. Everyone yeah. should take themselves seriously and give their own practice serious thought and um, advocate for it. So, in your career timeline, was that before or after you were at Gary Partners, or were you on your own by then? Um, it was after. I was at Frank's from like 96 to 2001, I think. Um, I had a few projects of my own. Um, I had to hand one of them off to a friend and kind of manage it from there, but it all worked out. Yeah, it's amazing because it feels like taking a year away, if you were running your own practice, could be really disruptive to your trajectory. <laughs> well, I think that's, from what I understand, that's one of the challenges for the academy. I don't know. I just think all the more reason to do it, all the more reason to force it to happen if you have something you need to research or an idea that you're going to need time to work out. And I noticed that that idea of the dream house has come up for you again. Like that was something that grew out of that experience. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Wow. You've done your homework. I have done. Yes. That's pretty nice <laughs> for you to notice. Um, the dream house I did very sincerely. The one that I did in Rome was very sincere. I had a new boyfriend and we both have creative practices and I was dreaming about what it would look like if we moved in together when we got back from Rome and how we could both be creative and live together, which I think is enough of a challenge even before you start introducing children to, into the equation. But the, the dream house concept then kind of stayed with me and I did a performance piece when I got back um, where I set up a like a Lucy's psychiatry psychiatrist stand outside of a gallery and offered architectural services for free to all comers. And people sat down and we designed their dream house together as fast as we could. <laughs> and the results were fascinating. I still have some of those drawings. It's very interesting to me, the things that people say when you ask them what their dream house is. What were some of the weirdest ones? The weirdest think? one was um, a little girl who wanted a shoe that had a slide on it so that you could get up to the top of the shoe and then slide like <laughs> around the shoe and down. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, and then there were simpler ones like someone who just couldn't figure out their furniture arrangement in their living room oh. and wanted some help. Uh -huh. um, taking advantage, like how to work with an awkward space that they were struggling with at home. And that was very dear also. Yeah. Yeah. People get very vulnerable and are willing to kind of open up really quickly as soon as you're offering them help. Right. I interviewed Kathy Opie. She has a piece where she has cut into her back an image of two stick figure women in front of a house and when I interviewed her about it, she told me that it was her dream house oh. in that image. And so that, that might've been the original trigger was that some people are thinking about their dream houses all the time. 
It's a really interesting concept because it's so accessible. It's such an accessible way to think about architecture. Yeah, I've and I've never had the impulse to actually build one for myself. Like I know a lot of architects have a goal to build their own house of their own design, and I I don't have that. It's like the shoemaker's kids not having any shoes. Like my house is not. I, I'm not even renovating it. I just accept it the way it is. Do you feel that way about all of your spaces? Like,、uh, for example, the office. Do you dream about? No, the office. I'm much more idealizing. I would like to build a building for the office one day. That's cool. Yeah. So it sounds like your ambitions for the office are probably to grow. We grew a lot in the last two years. I'd like to keep growing. Um, mostly so that we can have the capacity to do more public projects, which I'm really interested in doing. Yeah, I'm fascinated by how you were able to do that.、Uh, something you said in Lauren McQuaid's article is working hard on something you care about is the greatest gift you can give yourself. And I want to ask you how you were able to build up a practice where it's possible. To work hard on something I care about. Yes. If my mom were here, she would say that there's two talents I have that have been brought to bear on this.、Um, one is that I've always been someone who paces myself. So even when I was very small, if I was playing something and my mom said it was time to wrap it up and go, I would say, "You're going to have to give me a minute. I'm not done.、Hmm. I need like." Some time to finish this, and I've—that's true about me. I've always said that. Like, I don't like to be rushed.、Um, I don't、uh, overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah. Like,、um, and so our growth as a firm has been very slow and steady, and that's our plan: is to continue in that way. The other thing is, I got some role models early, and I do take it very seriously. Like, it's not. I'm not a freelancer. It's not a hobby. I worked in my dining room for like a hot minute, but I can't really work that way. I take it seriously as a business, but also as kind of an engine room for the collective creative efforts of the whole team. Oh, and the other thing is, someone pointed out to me recently is that I'm pretty good at figuring out what special talent each person I meet is bringing to the table, and to use that thing. Uh-huh. Like not turn people into things that they're not, right? But like take advantage of what they're skilled at or what they're talented at, and everybody's got something. Sometimes it's things that I don't know is are missing in the office. I have had been lucky to meet women role models who take themselves very seriously and won't really allow their work to be undermined or diminished or thought of as like a side. Thing or like a frivolous thing, and I'm thinking now of like some women artists I know, painters, abstract painters, who get dismissed for decades and don't stop. They just don't stop because they can't stop. You just have to stay focused.、Um, do you mind mentioning、uh, the names of those role models? The painter I was just now talking about, I hesitated to say her name because I don't want to embarrass her, but her name is Rebecca Morris. I bought a painting of hers with some of the first money I made、oh, wow. in practice, and she's a great painter. She's more than a painter, though. For me, she's also kind of a role model for taking one's creative practice very seriously. 
Like, what else would you do other than take it seriously? We're not here for very long. Right. Why else do it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she she has a manifesto that she wrote that I like a lot. And one of them is, if you can't stop, don't stop. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Do you have an art background at all? I don't. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm not an artist. I don't identify as an artist. I happen to be married to an artist, but I, no, I don't have an art background. I mean, I can draw, mm-hmm. but I think it's a, that's a different thing. Yeah. I, I read a little bit of the, the piece where, um, you were talking about the disciplines of art and architecture and how, you know, you see them very separately. And I think it's really interesting because you did come from Gary Partners where that's probably the architecture firm that's most often associated with the word like sculptural or um, things like that. That Can I stop you Sure. There? One of the things that's weird about that is that the way the word sculptural is used in that description is a definition of the word sculpture that hasn't really been in currency among sculptors in 50 years. It's so outdated. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, Frank did a huge amount of work for all of us on reclaiming the definition of architecture as an art. I think that architecture can be an art, but it's still the things that we do are still really different from what they do. Yeah, I agree. Has that experience working there shaped the way that you practice architecture with your own firm? Um, Yes. I was going to say yes and no, but I think I should say yes and yes. (laughs) Um, When I joined the firm, it was before Bilbao. Mm-hmm. opened. So it was, first of all, a really different place to decide to go work. I came from Princeton back East. And, uh, when I said I was coming to LA to work for Frank Gary, everyone thought I was nuts. Like, why would you go work for him? He's a weirdo. He's not serious. And then in the time that I was at the firm, Bilbao opened, everything changed. The firm doubled in size. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was joining like a, your standard Starkitect's office where young people were exploited and it was all about this one narcissistic egomaniac and that wasn't my experience it just really wasn't like it was much more it was a much more pragmatic place than I expected I learned a lot about how to conduct business and behave professionally and also, I would say that my methods that I, the methods that I use when I'm designing are really indebted to Gary Partners in that we're really focused on typological studies in terms of program type. We do research other building types that are the same in history and we break down program in the same kind of pragmatic way. Yeah. And I think I got that there. I did feel like from what I can see of your practice and of your work, like from the outside looking in that your approach to architecture is very pragmatic and it's very thoughtful in that way. And so I I admire that a lot. So I see that you're often collaborating with landscape architects and graphic designers and, you know, looking at the space here, you're sharing it with salt um, landscape architects. Can you talk more about these relationships and and why that is important for you? Yeah, happy to. The truth is that for a long time, I was looking for uh, another architect to be partners with because I didn't marry an architect and I was lonely. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think I was starting to repeat myself in terms of what I was making, but everyone said no. All the other architects that I approached <laughs> said uh, no. Um, 
That was probably very smart of them. And then I woke up one day and I was like, maybe it's not other architects I actually want to hang out with. And then I started to form this idea of an interdisciplinism that wasn't so much about the work, but sort of about my own personal experience. Um, was a little more self-centered, I suppose. And I said, oh, maybe there should be a landscape architect in the mix. And a friend of mine said, oh, you should meet Alan Compton. Do you know Alan Compton? And we went on like a speed date. And in <laughs> 10 minutes, we were compatible creatively and collaboratively. I think architects in general should be hanging out with landscapes architects. I think that architects abdicated some of our role as advocates for the public sphere. I don't know what happened. Like maybe we chickened out or something or we got scared about liability issues and we Hmm. became less activist Mm -hmm. in the last two decades. And landscape architects have rushed forward to fill that void. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Like they're the ones at the bicycle advocacy meetings. They're the ones at the open space meetings. Right. Right. Like they're at the mic. Mm -hmm. And that's really impressive and important. So it's good. They're good to hang out with. And graphic designers, I've worked closely with some great graphic designers, including Jessica Fleischman at Still Room. Um, We worked on Grand Central Market together multiple times. We worked on Edward Cella's gallery space in Culver City together. And it is partly that the work comes out better for the client if these things are thought of simultaneously instead of one at a time. Right. It's also just more fun. (laughs) It's also like, it's more, the creative process is better because everybody does things differently. And I have learned a huge amount from both Alan and Jessica about ways to kind of break open processes that had gotten overly familiar. Yeah. Um, I read a little about the charrette process Mm -hmm. that you guys went through for the, um, Pershing Square Renew. Uh It sounded really fun. Yeah, it was really fun. And it was, and that one was like even more collaborative. Like there were people in the room that don't draw as part of their practice. Um, Aaron Paley from Cars LA was there and Deborah Murphy, who's an urban planner. Deborah can draw. I don't know if Aaron can draw. Maybe he can, in which case I'm sorry, Aaron. But like <laughs> we're all just sitting around the table re-envisioning this place and the ideas are flying and my experience is that in that charrette environment, a good idea just has like a smell <laughs> and people can just kind of spot it and it doesn't really matter where it's coming from. I mean, I don't know, that could be like a partly mystical claim on my part, but it's great when it happens, when you get some, you get a little bit of uplift in the room and you can feel it. Yeah. How quickly did that radical flatness idea come about in that charrette? Oh, I don't remember, but it might have been in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it could have been. I bet just because it's so simple, but then it just makes so much sense. Yeah. That's cool. So with being the competition winning team, I imagine that's super exciting and kind of also a crazy experience to go from a competition to like actually making it happen. Well, the good news is I've been around that block before because of being at Gary's. Oh, right. Right. So I've been in these rooms before with, there's a lot of people in the room. There's a lot of voices. I'm talking specifically about the project I did for Frank over many years, which was for MIT. And we had a client group of hundreds of brilliant faculty members all lobbying for their own interests. But um, you learn to just, you know, wait until it's your time to 
to contribute. Like you just pace yourself. It's super important. Does that um, idea of pacing yourself, because you were talking about the parenting co-op you Mm -hmm. founded. So does that idea also apply to having a family and like balancing everything? Yes, kind of. I mean, I think it's gotten easier. My daughter's 10 now. Um, There's never enough hours in the day, truly. And I'm not sure I would call it balance. I guess like for me, that word has always implied that like somebody loses. For me, I think it's something more like simultaneity. Like Mm -hmm. I have to be simultaneously really preoccupied with the things we're at in the office and um, I don't know, a, a loving family member that's present in these personal relationships where I'm caring for other people and they're caring for me. Right. Like it's, it's complicated. Balance has not ever been the word I used. It feels like we have to do both things fully at the same time. Right. Yeah. It's funny. I don't think anyone who has kids ever uses that word or, yeah. um, yeah. Cause really the truth is if it were only up to me, I would work all the time. When I worked for Frank, I worked almost all the time and I love to work. I would work till I drop. <laughs> um, if it were up to my daughter, she would get me all to herself all the time. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't go to school. It would just be her and me and we'd be together all the time. And that seems like a reasonable like request on her part in a certain way. So n- nobody's going to get all the things all the time. So we figure it out from there. Yeah. Do you want to go into any detail about the co-op or is that kind of too personal? No, no, not at all. I've, I've actually given workshops on it at the Women's Center for Creative Work and I really believe in them. They're, they're definitely from a political impetus. I grew up in a, a babysitting co-op in Cow Hollow in San Francisco. Um, my mom and dad and other families in the neighborhood, uh, had a structure for collectivizing babysitting hours and traded. And we are still close with the families from that co-op. I think they're really important for women. (laughs) I basically think that the nuclear model of like only caring for your own children is just really bad for women. I'm not sure I can be more specific than that. So the parenting co-op or the babysitting co-op model is to try to encourage us to care for other people's children as well as our own children and to help other people care for their children. Um, and w- I know how to set them up. If anyone listening is interested, you're welcome to reach out and I'll give you like the starter kit oh, cool. that I have. Um, it's not rocket science. It just kind of takes a little structuring and follow through. And you do sort of have to train people. The, the, what's interesting to me about it is that everyone thinks they're too busy to watch other people's kids, but that's actually not the hurdle. The hurdle is that nobody is used to asking for help and you have to get over that. You have to be willing to say, I need help. At my daughter's preschool, they taught the kids to say, help needed, help needed. (laughs) And that's not something we're in a very fluid habit of in this culture because we're all supposed to be self-sufficient. And um, I just think that's bullshit. Yeah. I've um, heard actually that like in the history of humans um (laughs) the nuclear family is actually really quite new and counter to how we've lived for 
many, many, many years. Um, So it's interesting how this could make our lives better. Yeah, I think it's also kind of boring. Like, I think it has as many benefits for the kids as it does for the parents who get to go on a date or like go to dinner or, you know, do the shopping without someone pulling on you. The main thing I took away from it as a child is that it allows you to relativize your own parents. So you can see, like, my mom was really good at this, and, you know, Monica and Timmy's dad was really good at this and this. So if you needed help with something over here, maybe you'd talk to that dad instead of your dad, Uh which is sort of crazy if you think about it, because we're so controlling of our kids and like, we're supposed to make the universe they believe in, but there might be things we're wrong about. Yeah. (laughs) And so that, (laughs) that was really, really healthy for me in my development. And I want that ability to put me in perspective for my own daughter. And we're still going like we have a smaller group now, but we watch each other's kids on Saturday night. My husband watched a group of three girls and, uh, they all know each other really well. It's, it's like another in between a sibling group and like a cousin group. I think it's really important. I wonder, does that attitude tie in at all to, um, what we were talking about before with housing and sort of the social crisis we're in right now? So the parenting co-op I started evolved after a while into a group that was exploring possibilities for living cooperatively in a co-housing situation. And we spent a few years um, looking at land and models for how to do this and financing structures. And I'm still pursuing those kinds of experiments. And those those kinds of ways of living are definitely making a, a return at the moment where people are thinking again about how we can live in groups more um, supportively of one another and less inefficiently. I got a call recently from a mechanical engineer at JPL who's interested in this, and his angle on it is that it's just so inefficient (laughs) that we all have duplicates of the same garden tools on the block when there could just be like a shed that we all share. (laughs) It's something I'm really interested in. I'm, I'm interested in housing in general, but the multifamily housing model in particular. Um, so we started actively pursuing the multifamily, uh, segment about two years ago and our entrance into it grew really, really quickly. We went from like our first multifamily project was a six unit bungalow court. And then we worked on a, um, new ground up 38 unit small lot subdivision in Eagle Rock. And now we're working on a residential subdivision with over 200 units. Wow. So it's definitely an area that we're actively moving towards. Um, the housing shortage is it's an international problem truly, right? Cause it's a, it's one of the big markers of income inequality, uh, when housing is treated as a commodity. So in California, I'm a native Californian of many generations For me, it's kind of a complex topic area because on the one hand, there are market rate developers that are taking advantage of the housing shortage language to argue for deregulation that's happening at the same time that it's true there is a housing shortage. So both of those things are true. Right. And the the shortage is not an accident, in my opinion. I don't think it just happened. No. It was created over the past four decades 
in our state. And uh, we didn't used to have a housing shortage. Um, we used to build enough housing, specifically rental housing. And the process of declining to build the housing that we need hap- happened gradually. Um, so uh, we have to build more housing. We have to build more of the right kinds of housing, which is not just shallowly affordable housing, but deeply affordable housing that stays affordable. And we're looking at this carefully and trying to figure out how we can best contribute. Right, right. And I, I take it seriously as a Californian because I feel like the future of the state actually sort of depends on us figuring this out. I think that Measure HHH is a good indicator that some of the symptoms of it that man on the street, woman on the street was seeing in their cities, like street homelessness, reached a breaking point. And so hopefully there's reasons to be optimistic that we're starting to move in a better direction there's a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of work to do. So it sounds like some of the solutions you're talking about, like the small lot subdivision, just building more densely mm-hmm. is something that you're really interested in. I'm pro-density. I'm unapologetically pro-density. Some people now are saying, well, we can do it with mid-rises. I'm not afraid of high-rises, actually. I think tower housing should still be on the table in certain places of a city I mean, we we have some of it that works very well. I'm not willing to throw it out of the equation. It's all about how the tower hits the ground and where it is in the city. But um, yeah, I'm I'm pro density. You know, how did you make that leap from working in a residential project type of single family to six units to 38 or 20, mm-hmm, 38. 38, and then to 200? You said mm-hmm, over 200. <laughs> We started putting the message out there that we wanted to help. And we also created imagery of the kinds of projects that we wanted to make. So we used the smallest one as an opportunity to tell a story. And then we did that again, and now we're doing it it again. So the work starts to tell a story of how much better we think it can be, that it doesn't have to just be cookie cutter or off-the-shelf but it can be thoughtful and that it's a value add for our clients Mm -hmm. and the residents, right? The end users. Right, right. So your clients are developers in this case? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. There were definitely developers that have come knocking over the years that we got up from the table and walked away from. Right. I don't know where I got the nerve to do that. There were some times where these were big projects and I... Um, wanted to grow the office, but I could just tell that this was not a good idea. Um, you're swimming with the sharks. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And so we said no to a lot of developers over the years. And then after Pershing Square and after our first single family residence was sold and set a record, they started coming to us. Hmm. And then it felt like I had, maybe it had been good to be patient like we talked about at the beginning, that that they came wanting something special that they now had evidence that we could deliver. And so we started to be able to set our own terms in those conversations. That's great. Yeah. So we have a handful of developers that um, I think really get it. And the other thing I'll say is for a long time, I thought this is just a client type I'm never going to get along with because they don't value design. I just had a feeling that wasn't the whole story. So I started listening to them more closely 
and trying to figure out like what they really need. Like, mm-hmm. what are they asking for when mm-hmm. they come to an architect? What are they really, what are their values? Like, let's stop being so right. black and white about it. Right. You know, what do they, what do they want? They want to sell their project for more money and they want predictability. They want some, like, they want to get through the community without <laughs> opposition right. uh-huh. and they want to get through um, plan check and planning. And so I, I realized that these are things I can help you with. Yeah. Like we can represent your project. We can speak on its behalf. We can tell the story of your project. That can be part of what we do. And I'm not a diva. We can make selectively excellent design decisions that make you make more money. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not guaranteeing it, but like, you know, we are pretty sure that if you do these things, it's going to pencil. Right. And that's been helpful. I had a developer client recently say something just brilliant to me, which was, okay, we know you're creative. We know you could reinvent everything. I don't need you to reinvent everything. Just reinvent one or two things for me. Yeah. Just like one thing. Yeah. And I was like, that's amazing. That's so clear. He can't sell something where everything's been reinvented. Just selectively reinvent. Yeah. (laughs) So I really appreciated his clarity. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, Liz Valletta gave a talk about um, the way that developers approach things, the way that planners approach things, uh-huh. and the way that architects approach things, and showing that like the case studies we study are all different. Yeah, what we view as a success, a developer views, views as a failure. Yeah, and it's so fascinating to see that you're doing something that is meaningful architecturally but is also sensitive to a developer and that that relationship is possible. I think it is possible some of the time. I think it depends. But I think also we're good communicators. I try to, everyone in the office learns to be direct and speak up. You know, if you've invited us into the room in order to contribute from our area of expertise, then we're going to tell you what that is. But you know, I guess I d- there was definitely a moment where I was like, are we too judgmental to do this work? And we decided not to be. <laughs> we actively decided to, you know, to listen to them talk about what they need for their projects to be successful. Yeah. Like, what do they need? Yeah. And that's great. It is and a we, decision. Like one, one example is, um, you know, we made some radical changes to a project and the developer was going to bring this project to the office of a planning deputy that had to review it. And I said, okay, we'll come. And he said, you will? And I said, yeah, we'll come and we'll talk them through the project changes and we'll explain why they're necessary and better. And um, we did that. And at the end of the meeting, the planning deputy was on board and he said, no architect has ever done this before. And like you've given, he said to me, you've given me the vocabulary I need to be able to explain this project to other people. And I said, where do I sign up to do that? I can meet with your whole staff if you want to, to, to give you that vocabulary. Like, and I guess the developers are often in the position of doing this work on their own. And, um, I want to be in there. I want to be in there talking about how come this project is better. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that was a really interesting moment. Um, to wrap the interview up, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about the the way that your office is run right now and maybe looking towards the future, because I, I know that a lot of your employees have multiple backgrounds and you're talking about how important they are to you. Yeah, no, it's an engine for sure that we're building with lots of moving parts. 
We underwent this name change at the beginning of the year that was the result of a long period of thinking and deciding to diminish the importance of my name in the presentation of the practice because I'm leading the team, but there are really strong members of the team that are also providing leadership in their areas. And I want it to be a place that every member of the team can be growing and contributing and evolving as a professional and as an architect. So we're trying to build something that lifts everybody up um, as it lifts. That's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think that might have a feminist aspect also. Like I could develop this persona for the purposes of who knows what, right? Like this kind of individualistic diva character. Sometimes it seems like people want that as part of what they're hiring and sure we can deliver that, but it's also a collective effort. Like it's, you know, it's, it's all of us contributing a range of things. And I will say that whenever I've opened up the process, the work gets better. So I'm often surprised uh, that my idea is not necessarily the best idea. (laughs) That's really great. I think it's really um, refreshing to hear you talk about your firm that way. It's just my experience. And I guess it's probably related to the babysitting thing somehow, like that I, I believe that we're all in this together more than we probably even can know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was thinking about that earlier today, even about how um, our society can be very competitive. Mm-hmm. And in the long run, that doesn't help anyone because really our goal is to all be better. And if someone else is better, then aren't you better as well? Like, <laughs> you know, it. It's- yeah, well, it's a different ethic. I mean, I think in the cutthroat world where people are competitive and trying to defeat each other and squash each other, there some people do benefit. They benefit a lot. Right. Right? And I don't want to be someone that benefits in that way. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the XXLA Architects podcast. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Rachel Allen. If you want to see images of Rachel and the work, please visit our website at xx-la.com. Make it really easy on yourself and just sign up for our newsletter. You'll get an email announcement of every new episode, which includes images and links all in one place. You can also find me on social media at XXLA Podcast. We have exciting interviews coming up, and I'll also be moderating a panel at the upcoming AWA Plus D annual symposium on May 18th at SciArc. So stay tuned and thanks for listening.